Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. In Isaiah's Habitat, his statement in his ninth chapter about this child becoming a king named Mighty God, who's going to reign on David's throne forever, is incredibly radical. Obviously, it taps right into our promises to David about his line, promises that have kept us bound to Judah and Jerusalem all these years, by the way. These words of Isaiah mark out requirements that only I am able to fulfill. In short, or rather in medium, given how long we've already gone on about this, including previous episodes, this represents new information about us, introducing a way of thinking about us that has not been possible in earlier sections of the Who is God track. Not to hammer away at it too much longer, but there is never a point at which I have told any human, past or present, everything about me. You will never reach a point where you know all there is to know about us. That's part of the grand adventure, friend. You have to do the best with what you have, and I know enough to have given you plenty to chew on. You also have to be open to changing what you think about me when I decide you've reached the threshold at which you can handle a bit more knowledge of me. It is at this juncture we find our children just now, as we set this marker through Isaiah, that a human child will be born that will fulfill requirements that only I can complete. You may need to rewind and listen to that sentence again. This remarkable promise is made in the middle of crisis here as Isaiah speaks against the hardness of heart found in both Israel and Judah. On the instant heels of this precedent-laden passage, Isaiah is again speaking of our attempts to change our people's course through warning prophets and corrective lesser losses to enemies. Yet they still do not return to me while they deprive the poor of their rights and rob the fatherless. Isaiah 9, 8-10, 4 And so I must resort to the ultimate consequence of Israel being conquered and exiled by Assyria, the rod of my anger, in Isaiah 10, 5. The rod of my anger alluding to the shepherd's rod used to strike harsh blows upon predators. Only this time those blows must reverse in contractually required consequence. The king of Assyria thinks he is expanding his territory, and certainly he is. He is also acting as my agent, and so we may as well use him as a template to explore the interwoven mystery of causality to be found in a moment like this. If one looks only at the account of these goings-on in Kings, it all looks simply like politics gone bad. Read Isaiah, though, and it's all me doing everything, which is true. How about both? The greed driving the hearts of emperors is their own. I do not place it there. 
I, however, know it is there, and in this instance have allowed Israel's actions and that of her kings to run their uninterrupted course without stepping in, other than through the warning words of my prophets. At the last, I finally have not intervened in what your habitat might have called an enabling rescue. Israel has placed herself in a vulnerable position, and the expanding Assyrian Empire is going to make the most of that vulnerability. I am bound by covenant to no longer interfere on behalf of the North. It is an admittedly complex situation, and this interplay between my and human will must ultimately be allowed to fall in the category of mystery. Not to apologize for this state by any means, but you really must trust me on this and know that I am being more than fair through it all and cutting every human as much slack as possible. Yes, I am the ultimate cause of Israel's exile at the hands of Assyria. Read Isaiah 10, 12-19. We particularly like Isaiah's metaphors that reduce the boastful Assyria to simple hand tools. But at the same time, I will punish the kings of Assyria for their prideful taking of the credit for it all, and for trying to take things far past the bounds of their covenantal mission. This telling episode with Assyria continues to open up the anatomy of causality as we narrate the thoughts of Assyria's king. We are using him as a tool in our hands, yes, but he is also still operating under his own authority. He boasts to himself that if all other lands and their gods have fallen to him, then not only Samaria and the north, for whom covenantal consequences are now required, but also Jerusalem and Judah will surely be his as well. This is Isaiah 10.6. And while Assyria's coming attack on Jerusalem can be seen as a lesson for Judah in how easily they could suffer the fate of the north, I am not calling Assyria to take Judah into exile. Sennacherib of Assyria, however, will try to do so, clearly free of any puppet strings, to the point that I will have to intervene with what Isaiah terms a wasting disease among Assyria's sturdy warriors. Isaiah 10.16 This will prevent the capture of Jerusalem by Assyria's independently acting monarch. My will is done in the end, but within a complex interplay of allowance and influence. And mystery. Then even in the midst of all this judgment, as destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness, Isaiah 10, 21-23, this summarizes in a single turn of phrase pretty much the whole kit and caboodle in terms of our holiness, the law that defines and calls our people into lives of representative and relational holiness, their refusal to do so, and the resultant consequences. Isaiah casts another line of hope into the future, promising that after all the loss that must come to pass, a remnant of survivors who do not trust in human kings will return. Only a remnant a mere fraction of Israel's abundant populace at her greatest will be left. But out of that remnant, on the other side of exile, will come the ruler who will inaugurate what can only be the final goal of the Abra plan. 
Isaiah 11 describes a kingdom in which the poor and meek are protected, the wicked done away with, and deep, even cosmic peace settled through all creation as wolves lie beside lambs and cows eat with bears, all flowing from Jesse, the descendant of Judah, who happens to have had a son named David, naturally triggering again the recollection of the promised king to come of David's line who will reign forever. Yes, the Abra plan is still moving forward, and like it or not, exile plays a vital part in it. Now, when you picture exile, as in Assyria carrying Israel off to the east, you may envision land, towns, and cities emptied of populace, a ghost nation filled with ghost towns. In fact, the practice of Assyria and most other conquering empires is to take home with them only those they deem worth having, those that hold any power, wealth, or influence in the conquered land, which would include the local aristocracy, and those with any useful skill set, blacksmith, leather workers, artisans, and so on. Assyria didn't waste effort or resources on the relocation of peasants. The 28,000 or so folks from the north that Sargon takes with him back to Assyria are the ones seen to be assets with some level of worth. Others are left behind like pennies on a hotel room bureau. Since Assyria has been at this a while and has conquered plenty of people, they've got a whole system worked out as to what they do with the overthrown to prevent any kind of regrouping. In order to keep the rug pulled out from under whoever's left behind in conquered land, Assyria sends some of the dregs from other exiled nations into the freshly beaten one. Naturally, Sargon and his fellow kings take for themselves the plums of the peoples they beat, but there are a lot of leftovers in any society, and the Assyrians fancy themselves sociologists conducting a great experiment to see what you get when you mix together in random foreign locations large amounts of lower-income people from multiple beaten-down cultures. Well, you get the mess described in 2 Kings 17, 24-41. That's what you get. You've got at least five other cultures thrown into the land of Israel, each of them bringing not only one more god, Israel is the only nation who's narrowed it down, in theory, if not in practice, to a solo deity. Everybody else has got the old every-department-covering smorgasbord system going. As you can imagine, things do not go well for this new community at first. In territorial, theological fashion, the new transplants blame their troubles on me, or rather on themselves for not thinking to worship me since they've moved into what they perceive as my territory. This is not wholly unjustified, not the neighborhood part, but the I am God and thus should be worshipped part. They've had troubles because they haven't been worshipping me in other environments as well. They just don't realize it. Of course, no one left knows in any detail how to worship me, for a couple of reasons. For one, the apostasy of Israel has gone on for so long, no one has had a thriving life of faith on the way with me for generations up there. For the other, 
Anyone serving as a priest, however improperly, has been carted away in exile as part of Israel's creme de la creme to Assyria. Assyria routinely disconnects worship in each habitat they capture as one of the ways to prevent or hamstring any rebellion. However, in this case, they send one priest back to Israel to instruct the new residents there how to properly worship this Yahweh into whose land they've moved. Lest this excite you, keep in mind that I am simply placed in the steam table next to the other gods as an option. An option that's not to be missed, mind you, but also not to be seen as the one God. Yet another reminder of the complexity of the context in setting an educational track that establishes us apart from imagined deities before revealing more about our nature. At this point, I am simply the local fellow that's got to be appeased so the lions will stop attacking them. They're still full on with their hometown guys, too. And so the entire northern kingdom is given over to this hodgepodge jumble of multi-god worship. Naturally, it can no longer be known as Israel. Neither we nor Assyria would stomach that. Instead, its former capital city's name, Samaria, takes hold as the label for the region and its inhabitants come to be known neither as Jews, nor Hebrews, nor Israelites, nor even Assyrians, but Samaritans. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.